I first want to acknowledge the fact that um, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit because we've had some exceptional teaching over the last three weeks, haven't we? I mean, Ryan and Mike and Eric did a phenomenal job um, teaching. Yeah, yeah. Excellent job. And, and uh, we, we finished off the series Shape Up, which really was a series to help launch us into thinking more about what discipleship looks like, what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ, but more importantly, what it means to be disciples who know how to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so a uh, great series. But what that series is done now. And so this week we're kicking off a brand new message series as we're going to take a study through the book of Mark. And we've titled this series Servant King. And I think that as we start to get into these passages of scripture and unpack the gospel according to Mark, you're going to see in Mark's own verbiage just why Jesus is the servant king, and Mark puts great emphasis on that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me, as a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 1. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 1, and I've titled this message, I Witness. I Witness. Now, I know that's a little play on words, but every single one of us need to be eyewitnesses of Jesus, right? This is like the non-participating class today. You're all off. Well, come on back on. Come back. Come back. All right. Thank you. Believe I will. I'll never forget January 19, 1991. It was January 17, 1991. I hadn't even gone to recruiting school yet. I was in the Air National Guard. And on January 17, 1991, Desert Storm broke out. The United Nations had given Saddam Hussein five months to withdraw his troops from Kuwait, and he refused. And so when the deadline came and passed, the United Nations and the Allied Forces and Coalition got together, and we commenced with what was called shock and awe. And that footage that you just saw was just a snippet of, of the war that took place, the war that ensued over Baghdad, tracer fire, anti-aircraft missile fire, all kinds of things. I mean, the sky was lit up. War had begun. I never will forget that one of my favorite news correspondents was Bernard Shaw. He's an African-American news reporter, he was on the ground floor. He was right there at ground zero when the war kicked off. He was in a hotel in Baghdad, and he was reporting step by step, blow by blow, what was going on. All the other news anchors were down in a bunker, ABC, NBC, CBS. All the other affiliates were down in a bunker, and Bernard Shaw was in a hotel room giving play-by-play, blow-by-blow analysis of what was going on. Mark's gospel is a whole lot like that. Mark's gospel is a, it's like Mark is a news correspondent giving us details, I mean fast-moving details of what's going on in the life of Jesus Christ. He's like a, a news correspondent on ground zero. It's an action book. 
It's fast moving with, with vivid depictions of persons and events that draw the reader into the story. And so I'm excited about teaching this book. The date that this book was written, many believe, I was somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. Some scholars place it 60, 70 AD. I, I tend to, to agree with the scholars that say that the writing of the book took place 60 to 70 AD. And Mark is considered to be the oldest of the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark is the oldest. The other two Gospels are actually uh, taken, a lot of their stories are taken from the Gospel of Mark. Mark's emphasis is the challenges to Jesus by satanic forces and how Jesus continues time and time again to not just defeat them, but to triumph over them. Mark's gospel speaks of, of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the invasion of the kingdom of God on earth through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the servant Messiah. And so in that, Mark's gospel also speaks of the need for followers of Christ to also take up our cross and to follow Jesus, following his ways and his works, his disciples of Jesus Christ. I love Mark. Mark, Mark is fond of the word uh, immediate. It's, this word is taken from the Greek adverb that, that translates to the English word immediate. And it also transfers or translates to the English phrase at once. So you see this sense of immediacy and urgency all throughout the book of Mark. As a matter of fact, in just the first chapter alone, you see Mark say either immediately or at once 11 times. It's fast moving. The central theme of the book of Mark is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, King of Kings, and how he becomes the suffering servant that pays the ransom for our sins as well as becoming a model of suffering and sacrifice that we are to follow as his disciples. The anchor verse for this book is Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 45, where Jesus makes this statement, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we're going to dive right into this book. Mark does a great job in this first chapter of identifying the servant king. And he does it by recording testimonies of several eyewitness, dependable eyewitnesses that ensure that Jesus Christ is indeed who he says that he is. So do you have your Bibles? You with me? Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. I'll be reading out of the ESV, so it'll sound a little different maybe if you're reading out of a different version. You've heard me say this many times. I'll say it again. You know what the best version of the Bible is? The one you will faithfully read. Somebody say amen. amen. Yes, yes. I like now the talk back, the talk back crowd. I love it. Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John just, John, I love the way that marks him. John just appeared. It's like, bam, he just appeared. Baptizing folk. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to, to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I'm gonna let me just stop for a minute. We're gonna come back to this. That's a weird dude, man. I mean, powerful gospel, but that's a weird cat, man. Yeah. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's important. Remember that. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, everybody say immediately. Immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you my beloved son, and with you, I am well pleased. Mark identifies in this text four eyewitness dependable testimonies. And here's the first. The first one is John Mark himself. Mark boldly states, he says, I know for a fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the son of God. That's his proclamation. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark, a little bit about the author. His name is John Mark. He's a son of Mary, a woman of prominence in Jerusalem. She had great wealth. As a matter of fact, it's highly probable that the church that met in Jerusalem met at, at Mary's house. John is also the cousin of Barnabas, Paul's companion on his first missionary journey. And there are three things I want you to know about Mark that, that I think really sets up this book really well. First, Mark had the rare privilege of accompanying Paul and, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But here's the problem. Mark failed to, to complete the missionary journey. And somewhere in the journey, I don't know if it's halfway in or a third of the way in, he turned around and went back. I think he went back home to Jerusalem. And because of his desertion, when it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him, and Paul said, uh-uh, he's a deserter. He can't go with us. And, and watch what happens, man. I, you know, I, I wrestled with this, what, you know, what to say with this, because, you know, we always want happy endings to a story. But listen, the contention between Paul and Barnabas was so severe that these two icons of the faith divided this contention, this strife between whether or not to take Mark on the, on the second missionary journey, divided Paul and Barnabas. And I find nowhere in Scripture were they ever reconciled. 
The Bible is written to give us examples of what to do and how to act and respond to each other. It's also written for us as a roadmap of what not to do and how not to respond to each other. Relationship is what Jesus came for. Relationship is important. Everybody say relationship, relationship. is paramount. And so God wants his people to reconcile. So anyway, the contention broke out. The two separated. Paul takes Silas. He goes on a second missionary journey. Barnabas takes Mark down to Cyprus and begins ministering, about, begins ministering there. Some 12 years elapse, and we find that Mark and Paul do reconcile. Because Paul, just before his execution, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, makes this statement to the church. He says, get Mark for me. Get John Mark. Send him to me. Why? Because I found him to be useful to me in my ministry. Bangs, breaks a point to me. Begs a point. I think this part of, Mike's, of Mark's biography is proof that just one failure in life doesn't determine your usefulness in the kingdom of God. Just because you make a mistake doesn't mean that God can't use you. Don't let the enemy tell you that the mistake you made, this is the one that God can't forgive. This is the one that's going to cause God to fall off his throne and cease being God. I believe the Bible, I believe that this passage is written so that we can understand that, man, we can recover from our mistakes and God can still use us to advance his kingdom. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Mark became a close friend and even a disciple of the apostle Peter. Some of the earliest writings, in fact, identify John Mark as Peter's interpreter. Watch this now. Accurately recording Everything that Peter could remember about his personal encounter with Jesus, and, and keep in mind, Peter was one of the three. Peter had a bird's eye view to everything that Jesus was doing. Everywhere Jesus went, he took Peter, James, and John with him. And so now here's John Mark sitting down like an eyewitness correspondent, writing down everything that Peter could remember about all that Jesus had said and all that he had done. Third thing is, it's likely that, that, that John Mark was an eyewitness of some of the events that he wrote about himself. There are many scholars that believe that Mark was a young man that was described in, in Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 51, where, where the big cohort comes to Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And Jesus is standing there, and as the cohort approaches him, he's standing like Morgan Freeman. You know, Morgan Freeman is just cool. He's standing like Morgan. Everybody else is tripping, right? The, the scripture tells us that they seized Jesus, and then they seized another young man that was, that was dressed in nothing but a linen cloth. And this cat was so slick, when they, when they grabbed him, he just like slid out of his clothes and ran away naked. Okay, really, that's in scripture, <laughs> right? I love the Bible, man. The Bible gives you all these bizarre stories that you know are true. It's awesome. So, so many scholars believe that John Mark was that guy, right? So personal 
eyewitness accounts. So Mark is the first witness. The second witness is the witness of the two Old Testament prophets we find in verses 2 and 3. And Mark cites these two quotations from the Old Testament prophets. The first is found in Malachi 3 and 1. I, 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 just, want, I just wanted to see if you guys was awake. Everybody say Malachi. Yeah, all right, yeah. And I know I can't get away with that one. You know? now, some people say Galatians, some say Galatians, but you can't get away with Malachi. <laughs> I'm cracking my own self up today, man. <laughs> so Mark grabs two Old Testament prophets, the prophet Malachi, who had some 300 years earlier wrote this about John the Baptist. He said, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Then you go back some seven, almost 800 years early, and he grabs a passage from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Mark takes these two prophetic voices of, of Malachi and, and Isaiah, and he joins them with himself to declare, yes, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. Two eyewitnesses. Here's the third. The third eyewitness is John the Baptist. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord by, by calling the nation of Israel to repentance. Something significant about John the Baptist I don't want you to miss. The appearance of John the Baptist when he came on scene was one of the most important events in the history of, the, of Israel because God hadn't spoken to his children for almost 400 years, more than 300 years. It had been that long since God had spoken. So now, this cat, John the Baptist, appears on scene, right? And he's preaching the baptism of repentance, and he's in this desert region. And this is where he starts his ministry. This region is most likely somewhere nestled between the Judea and, and, and the Dead Sea. It's a rugged area, man. It's wilderness, I mean, nothing really lives out there. So John's, John's like this weird dude, man. Check him out. Check out his clothing. He wore a robe of camel hair. Now, you know, when you think of camel hair, I don't want you to think of cashmere, right? I want you to think of camel hair. Camel hair represented some of the, I mean, only the, the poorest of the poor wore, wore camel hair, right? And then he had, he was girded around his waist with a leather belt. Now, I want you to picture, it wasn't like thick leather, like cowboy belt. It was like a little leather thong belt, right? That's all he had. That's all he was dressed with, man. Ooh, look what he ate. His food was locust and wild honey. Now, there are two possible meanings of, of locust. It could be, you know, this, this nutty kind of, 
of food that, that, again, the poorest of the poor ate, or it could be an actual insect. I think weird people like John probably ate the insects. That's what I'm thinking. I bet on that. And the honey could have been one or two things, too. It could have, it could have really been either honey from, from bees and a honeycomb, or it could have actually been bark from, from certain specific trees that, that you know, the, the, the sap is distilled within the bark, and, and you can actually eat, you can actually suck the, the juice out of the bark, and it's like, it's like honey, sweet. Could have been that. The point is that John's diet was simple, and it was down to earth. I make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. You know who John reminds me of? You ever see those guys out in the Alaska wilderness that have been out there for like a long, long time by themselves? <laughs> you know, and they walk around talking to themselves. You know, you pull up into the gas station in Telkeetna. <laughs> you filling up your gas tank and this cat goes walking by. And you, you know, you're kind of nervous while you're filling the tank up. You're like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, yeah. mm. <laughs> What was that? What was that? You know, he reminds me of one of those cats that like kind of just go off. And one of those guys that are kind of scary to be around. You know, that's what John reminds me of. But listen, his ministry was so powerful because he became the front runner, the forerunner of Jesus. He preached the baptism of repentance. And listen, the Jews, the, 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 the Jewish nation, they heard his voice. And so they went to the wilderness where he was to hear his message. Now, you know, if a guy like John is preaching a message of repentance in the wilderness and you're going out there in the wilderness to hear him speak, he must have been endued with the power of God to teach as a forerunner of Jesus. So here's another lesson. Just came to me. This came straight, straight from the Lord. Don't let nobody tell you you're too weird to hear from God. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think some of the strangest people are the ones that hear from God the best. Okay, I better leave that alone. <laughs> yeah, y'all laughing because y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> So John is preaching the baptism for forgiveness of sins, and there's a peculiar message to the Jews because, see, the Jews believed that only the Gentiles that had converted to Judaism were the ones that needed to be baptized through this ritual because they had all these defilements in their past, and, and, and this was the way to wash away those defilements. And so the Jews were, were being asked to do something they had never done before. John's call to repentance for the children of Israel meant that they had to own up to the fact that they needed to, some cleansing too, that they needed to repent for their disobedience. And remember I told you about repentance about three weeks ago? I told you repentance is not just turning away from something. Repentance is turning away from something and moving towards something greater. 
So John the Baptist, as he's the forerunner of Jesus, is, is preaching the baptism of repentance. And he's saying, listen, I don't want you to just turn away from the things that you are doing and just like, you know, do nothing with the turning away. No, instead, there is a Messiah that is coming. And I want you to turn away from what you are doing and then begin to move towards him and embracing his gospel. Hmm. Then he goes on to say this, because after me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Wow. And I don't want you to miss that because here's what, here's what, here's what John was saying. You know, the roads... The road system back in those days were not paved roads. And so the people had to walk along the roads, and the roads would be dusty, and they'd be muddy, and there'd be manure, dung, doo-doo, whatever you want. Y'all get it? You get it? And people would be walking in it, man, and stuff be all over their feet, you know? And then they go into, they go into to Connie's house with stuff on their feet. Don't let him in, Connie. So they go into Connie's house with stuff on their feet, and they get to the door, and it's the servant's job to take off their shoes and wash the guest's feet. You get a picture of that? John the Baptist was saying, listen, the one that's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to do that. Wow. Wow. I wasn't expecting to get quiet in here like that. So John says, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy to, to, to stoop down and unlatch his shoes, but yet Mark shows us that Jesus, when he came, he didn't come with pump and circumstance. Jesus came without great fanfare. And Mark tells us that he came from this remote village of no reputation. He comes from Nazareth in Galilee. I, I love what John says in John chapter 1, verse 46. He says, Philip goes to Nathaniel when Jesus is choosing his disciples. And he, he goes to, to Nathaniel, he tells Nathaniel, he says, listen, man, we have found Messiah. We have found the one that the Old Testament was talking about. All the prophets and the law of Moses, we have found Messiah, right? And it's Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> you know what Nathaniel told him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus didn't come from a place of, of high reputation of pomp and, with pomp and circumstance. No, he didn't. He came as a servant king. And then he submitted himself to be baptized by John, not because he needed to repent. Because remember, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. No, instead what he did was he, be, he got baptized with the baptism of repentance to identify with us and to give, John's, to give approval to John's ministry. You can find that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. So John the Baptist now becomes the third witness. 
from our text. And here's the fourth and final one. I'm going to wrap this up. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am, man. This has been... I love this, man. I, I love it. Okay, here's the fourth and final one. The fourth and final witness is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, verses 9 through 11. After Jesus was baptized, three events, sequential events, happened in quick succession. First, Jesus saw the heaven being torn open. Can you imagine that? Who can do that? Who can tear the heavens open? God. So God the Son now is standing here, and God himself is tearing the heavens open. It's, it's symbolic of, of power and authority. The king. The second thing we see is, is the spirit descending on him like a dove. Symbolic of meekness and gentleness of a servant. And this, in the, in the dissension of the Holy Spirit, this was, this was the Holy Spirit making residence or taking up residence in the Messiah and clearly anointing him and empowering him for ministry. It's a metaphor for, for the kingdom of God breaking into human existence, breaking into human experience to deliver and draw his people to himself. And here's the third and final one. Melissa, you can come up if you would. The father spoke to his son. And here's what he said. You are my son who I love. With you I'm well pleased. It's the affirmation of a father. And that word, whom I love, is also uh, the word in other translations that say beloved, and it means the one and only, the only begotten. Jesus, God is saying, God the Father is saying, you are my only son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. That's the fourth witness. So here's my question for you today. Are you an eyewitness of the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Is it evident in your life that he has taken residence in your heart? Is it evident not just, not just to you because you know that you've done it, but to others who are around you, who come in contact with you? Can they look at your life and witness that Jesus is alive in you.